0: Small business financial services are only 1% finished. Our latest research examines the jobs to be done and cultural insights on what U.S. business owners need and the digital services that will help them meet their goals. Download the research for free by heading to bit.ly forward slash digital SMB. That's bit.ly forward slash digital SMB, all lowercase. This episode of InsurTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, and helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Hi everyone, my name is Sarah Kaczanski and welcome to episode 67 of InsureTech Insider. We are still recording remotely and we'd love to know what guests you think we should get on the show. Do get in contact by sending us an email to podcast11fs.com if you know someone we should have along. In today's show, we're going to be discussing the most interesting news in the worlds of insuretech and insurance from across the globe. I'm joined today by my co-host Nigel Walsh. How are you doing, Nigel?
1: I'm very well, thank you very much. I'm surprised it's Friday. It's just gone past like a flash.
0: Oh, got to love a four-day week. I think in both America and the uh, UK, we've had four-day weeks this week. It's been brilliant. I actually have a four-day week next week as well, so I'm going to rub it in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot. Just because I can. Um, Joining us today are three amazing guests. First up, we have returning guest Gillian Williams, Principal Investor at Anthemus Group. Uh, How are
2: you and where are you, Gillian? Doing all right, Sarah. Thank you so much. I think from the last time I was on this show was early March. So the world has changed drastically um, since then and now, both in the US and in Europe. Uh, But I'm based, so typically I'm in New York, but I'm actually down in Florida with family uh, for the past two and a half months now.
0: Lovely. Is, Is the weather good there? Because we're British, we have to talk about the weather.
2: It's it's beautiful. Um not sure in Celsius, but it's about 80 degrees basically every day and sunny and warm. Um, if only I think beaches just reopened. Um, so haven't really been able to experience the warm weather, but I get to see it out the window.
0: Well, I hope it continues for when you're allowed back outside. Um, can you quickly recap for any new listeners what Anthemis is and what you do there?
2: Of course. So Anthemis is an early stage fintech focused venture capital firm. Uh, we've been around for about 10 years and we're based between London and New York. So our focus is really North America and Europe. We invest pre-seed to series A um, and we invest on everything across fintech. So uh, financial services, insurance, um, real estate, and then a lot of the sort of data and technology layers that can be in that space as well. Um, And I'm a principal on the team, uh, part of our investment team. So everything from sort of sourcing due diligence to working with our portfolio companies and taking board seats as well.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Secondly, we have Alex Dalyak, founder and CEO at Tractable. How are you doing today, Alex?
3: Doing well, thanks. Thank you for having me.
0: Can you please tell us a little bit about Tractable?
3: Sure. Uh, So we are uh, London headquartered, five years old. And what we do is uh, AI for accident and disaster recovery. So if you think of anything from an accident on the road, but potentially also natural disasters, whether it be floods, hurricanes, or wildfires, whenever you've got damage, obviously insurers are usually the ones to to pay out. Recovery always starts with sending a human out to look at the damage, appraise it, and figure out how to fix things and how much it's going to cost. But there's been a breakthrough in artificial intelligence where you can actually classify images as accurately as a human. So we are taking out that manual element so that, Response to accidents and disasters can be faster, as well as recovery. Um, In terms of where we are in our life cycle, uh, we've got a team of over 100 offices in London, New York and Tokyo. We've raised over $55 million in uh, venture capital funding.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming along. Um, And last, but by no means least, we are joined by Amrit Santharaseynan, co-founder and CEO of Hyper Exponential. How are you doing today, Amrit?
3: I'm
4: very well. Thanks, Sarah. Very well. You did very well there, I've got to say. The whole sentence, that was seamless.
0: <laughs> Just wait till I mess up my own name at the end. Uh, brilliant. So can you tell us quickly what Hyperexponential is?
4: Absolutely. So uh, Hyper uh, makes a platform for insurance companies to design, build, deploy and then apply mathematical models uh, in their businesses. Uh, they use it for lots of things. Uh, mathematical models are used a lot for insurance pricing in particular. That's my background. I worked in the specialty insurance markets for 15 years uh, and got thoroughly fed up with not being able to buy software to do my job, despite it being a $220 billion insurance market around the world. Uh, So I decided to do what Foolish founders do uh, and solve the problem myself. Um, Yeah, so uh, we do that. Our our focus is on providing an order of magnitude speed increase in building these models. Um, It's historically taken a really, really long time. A lot of people... A lot of effort to get these models built, uh, in orders of magnitude, um, kind of weeks or months. It's uh, so where we've got that model build and deploy process down to a few days. Uh, and we also focus on a really, really good user experience because it takes actuaries and kind of mathematicians, it takes underwriters, and it takes IT teams, uh, a huge team effort to get this work, uh, to get things to work smoothly. And our job is to provide them a one stop shop to make all of that really, really seamless.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Let's get on with the show. Um, so, the first story is that it's been a big month for funding in InsurTech. Um, so, just as a quick recap, uh, this is particularly um, in the UK, I should mention. Um, by Miles raised a £15 million pound Series B, Urban Jungle raised another £2.5 million, pounds. Bought by Many got an £80 million pound boost from a share sale, um, and Cycle Insurer Bicmo raised £1.8 million in a Series A. Um, so, to find out more about these deals we spoke to James Blackham, CEO and co-founder of Buy Miles.
5: We're thrilled to announce that Buy Miles has just closed a £15 million Series B funding round. Securing funding at the moment hasn't been easy and we're incredibly grateful to investors that are joining us on the journey to build out the future of pay-by-mile car insurance. The round was led by Commerce Ventures, along with our existing investors, Octopus Ventures, InsureTech Gateway, and Jamjar Investments, who are also continuing to support us. We're going to use the money to continue to grow, carrying on with our mission to bring a fairer kind of car insurance to as many people as possible. Now more than ever, flexible insurance is essential. Times have changed, and so have driving habits, and that really needs to be reflected in car insurance premiums. Having established ourselves as the UK's leading pay-by-mile car insurance policy, we've had our strongest sales weeks in May, so this funding couldn't come at a better time for us. The new investment will allow us to expand our team and our technology to scale with increased demand for our policies. We'll be focusing especially on growing our development teams and our customer support departments, ensuring that we can continue to offer market-leading service today while building solutions for what's coming tomorrow. Having launched the world's first connected car insurance policy and becoming the first UK InsureTech to be granted an open banking license earlier this year, these are the foundations we plan to build on. We'd also like to say a big thank you to all of our Buy Miles members, to everyone that has bought a policy, referred a friend, sent us messages of support or simply spread the good word about Buy Miles, thank you. This funding will allow us to reach even more people and make car insurance fairer for everyone.
0: So um, so that was uh, James from Buy Miles there. Um, for those who um, missed the last week's show when we had Buy Miles on the show, um, it uh, offers flexible uh, insurance for uh, the UK's 90 million lower mileage drivers, so basically people who drive fewer than 7,000 miles a year. Um, the other companies I mentioned at the beginning, just to give you a quick recap um, of who they are, Urban Jungle, we've also had on the show a few times. Um, it provides insurance to what they call generation rent. Um, they have basically gained uh, another 2.5 million from um, echa Ventures um, and various other backers as well. Um, Bought by many, we've also had on the show several times. They're a British pet insurer. Um, They're very, very fast growing. They've secured $78 from FTV Capital, which backs um, financial services companies. Uh, Bought by many, currently already insures more than 200,000 pets um, and has recently expanded from the UK to Sweden. Uh, So it's going to use that money for more international expansion. And last by no means least is BICMO, who we haven't had on the show, Um, but it's an expert cycle insurance provider. Uh, This is the first VC round they've raised. They were established back in 2014. Um, Interestingly, the investment was led by the Development Bank of Wales, though as far as I can tell, they're an English company, so maybe somebody can explain that to me. Um, They invested alongside Hiscox, who we all know well, along with some other existing and angel investors, Um, and Bikmo has offices in both Austria and the UK. So uh, let's kick off. Great news. Nice to see funding flowing into startups, particularly in the insurance space. but the question we sort of have to ask is how much of this was agreed pre-COVID-19 and how much of this perhaps is emergency funding off the back of what's happened during COVID-19? Um, and then we'll kind of we'll take it from there. So who wants to go first? Uh, Alex, please, jump straight in.
3: Thanks. Yeah, happy to. Um, so m- maybe a perspective, uh, having completed a few rounds, uh, C to A, B, and more recently C. We actually ourselves got very lucky because we we closed our 25 million series C round two weeks before the the market meltdown started. Um, But yeah, from experience, uh, the fundraising process, you will talk to a bunch of different investors. You'll eventually sign a term sheet. um, And that's the bit where you say, hey, these are the terms. This is the valuation. This is how much we're raising. And at that point is when the rest of diligence starts. And it's typically between one and a half to three months from term sheet to closing funds. And then it's typically sort of one to two, zero to two weeks to actually announce from the point at which you funded. it. So if you work your way backwards, it looks like it looks like by miles might have signed their term sheet before the market meltdown started, which would have definitely created quite a bit of pressure for them because valuation multiples changed. But if they managed to raise this, it's probably that they're growing really well.
0: Brilliant. And does anybody else want to, to have? I'm sure you have thoughts, Julian. <laughs>
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it's definitely not, I think what Alex said is definitely true in terms of it could be a standard timeline. Definitely not one size fits all. And I think a lot of it depends on the size of the round. Typically, larger amounts of money will just require longer amounts of longer timeframe in terms of due diligence. Maybe smaller rounds can be done a lot faster. And I think also it can depend on who is investing as well. Uh, I think you said Bank of Wales is one. I'm assuming that their process for due diligence is a lot longer than a seed stage VC um, who's writing like a $2 million check size. And so that can really depend. And I think if you look at it now, we're in sort of the two-month period of like the toughest parts for the coronavirus in terms of the UK. And so I think I can say with a significant amount of certainty that at least for all of these companies that the investors had probably met them um, and begun conversations prior to coronavirus and then sort of the closing as Alex is describing and everything happening during it. Um, that that being said, there have definitely been uh, rounds that have been raised and closed all within the coronavirus so far. Um, and I think to your second question as well in terms of do we think this is more of a trying to help them survive versus continuing on growth. I think, again, making some assumptions, but typically if it was something that was just giving them a lifeline, it would be more so from inside investors. Um, I think if the external investors are coming in, you usually are seeing sort of, they're looking more so for what does the future look like? And I think something good for, by Miles specifically, is the fact that personally, I don't think that car, like driving cars is going to go away. If anything, there's, there could be the argument that especially in London, um, people are going to want to take the tube less and drive more. And so maybe there's some tailwinds on that and that people are actually needing more insurance. And so I think the growth horizon for them actually still looks extremely positive.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. So by miles as well, you know, some people will be driving more because, as you say, you know, you won't want to take public transport if indeed you can. But I suppose on the other hand, people will be driving less because they're no longer commuting. So it's it's really interesting. And I think a lot of this, um, you know, when we talk about this, is down to the model and the, the product that the insurer, uh, you know, in particular sells. Um, so I just wondered if, you know, anybody had any thoughts on how much of this money you think will be used to continue existing plans and how much of this money is great we've got it signed off but actually we need to change what we're doing to meet current circumstances and you know as we now understand circumstances that are not going to go back to normal like that unless you know you're in New Zealand in which case bully for you my sister's there I'm so jealous. Um, Amrit, Amrit did you want to go in on that one first?
4: Yeah it's a really good uh, it's a good question it's kind of topical for us ourselves as you think about how Uh, events like this change the opportunity, right? Absolutely, has the opportunity changed? You look at some of these companies, you you know, cycle insurers, right? An opportunity where more and more people are gonna be moving towards cycling. I think the question is, as a startup, generally you're very focused on growth uh, and you want to grow as fast as possible, right? Subject to some other constraints. So I think in terms of changing plans, I, d- I don't know whether it changes plans materially for the companies that are listed here. Does it accelerate some of them, looking at their business models, looking at what they do? Uh, absolutely. If I were them, I'd be seizing the day, uh, not least, uh, as you know, Julian and Alex said, that they've, they've come through the difficult part, right? They've closed the deals. Um, therefore, they're ready to go. It's opportune. Um, so, yeah, um, I can't say whether they would necessarily change, but looking at what they do, uh, could they be, would they, would they be wanting to put their foot down and really make the use of that capital. Yeah, it seems like an absolute slam
1: dunk, I think.
0: Nigel, thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first, the first thing for me is the, the excitement or the general positivity of the volume or the number of investments. I think it's a really, it's a welcome positive news in these, I don't want to say dark times, but it's very, very welcome. Um, it, it is intriguing. I think actually I have two observations, uh, both Freddie and James, you have been on the show, Freddie from Cover and Team, have been venomously defending the desire to move to usage-based or utility-based insurance for a very long time. They've been all over the press for weeks going, why do we need to do any of this sort of stuff? Um, We should be charging people as they see fit accordingly. So I think they've got what they want. The one thing that I, in the back of my mind, I worry about is if you're a large traditional carrier that's got already millions of customers, how quick is it for you to replicate something like this in your existing book? So I don't disagree. I think the model that these guys have got is outstanding. And as someone who drives less than 3,000 miles a year, it's ideal for me or should be ideal for me. But if you're one of the major carriers in the UK or globally, and this is the business model of the future, what's stopping me doing that today in my existing book? So I think it's, uh, would I use this money to gear up and get scaling customer? Or how do I protect myself from others copying it quickly?
0: Interesting. Does anybody else want it? Jillian, did you want to jump in on that?
2: Yeah, I think it would be extremely difficult for the large insurers to kind of change their business model to something like Buy Miles and Child and Replicate it. They've been around for hundreds of years and their entire business has been based off of underwriting for these sort of more traditional assumed um, risks of you pay your premium monthly, kind of a standard cost. And I think for them to come and all of a sudden revamp it well, I think it'd be interesting. And I think if they did, they have the capital behind them. Um, it would take an entire change of how they operate and how they're how they're thinking about underwriting so entirely new underwriting and pricing models, um, how they're dealing with the capital in terms of sort of like their balance sheet. And I think that it would be a massive undertaking for them, not to mention a lot of them are public companies. And so you're also then facing so, the... The repercussions from the public market side as well, which I think can be really challenging for these businesses. Amrit, did you want to to give us some final thoughts on that
0: one?
4: Yeah, I I think the other thing uh, with respect to that is a lot of these startups, their capacity is provided by the big insurers, Um, and it's a really interesting one. I think Nigel poses a really uh, a, a fair point, as you know, insurers are seeing people flocking from classical insurance models to usage-based ones and many of the capacity, much of the cap- capacity is provided by the, the incumbents already. Uh, so, I think we're going to see a really weird Hobson's choice going on uh, for some of the uh, classical uh, providers um, in, that, in that regard.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we can all agree that we might not know exactly what it's going to look like, but things are going to have to change. Um, and uh, obviously, we will be we're keeping a close eye on it here. But um, uh, to to move on to the next story, but sadly not away from COVID-19, the next story is uh, from the Financial Times, and it's that Aviva and QBE uh, face legal threat from bars and restaurants. So Aviva and QBE have become the latest insurers to be targeted by angry customers about their refusal to pay claims on business interruption policies. Hospitality Insurance Group Action, which is working with bars and restaurants that could potentially face ruin because of the pandemic, plans to focus on these two insurers in particular after its lawyers said the wording of their policies offered the best chance of success. Uh, Most insurers say that the vast majority of policies do not cover the sort of disruption caused by the pandemic, but customers, uh, many of whom are small businesses, argue that the wording of their contracts means that they do provide coverage. Um, So paraphrasing here, but uh, some of the wordings just don't respond to that specific cover uh, and there are a whole load where there is arguably coverage, said a spokesperson from the legal firm representing HIGA. Um, These two insurers have stronger wordings from a policyholder perspective. I mean, this is a story we've sort of touched on before. Um, the interesting thing that's sort of new on this, apart from this being a new case, is that the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, which is one of the regulators here, plans to launch a test case in the high court um, in an effort to provide some clarity for insurers and their customers. So that case is basically to take it through the courts and decide you know, whether people people have, have a case or not, and then um, basically to try and, as far as I understand it, reduce the number of, of claims that are being brought, um, or legal cases, sorry, that are being brought against insurers. Um, as I've commented on before, we're not typically that litigious in this country, but we have seen a huge amount of um, activity in this space, uh, particularly along the, the lines of class action. Again, something we haven't historically seen a huge amount of in this country, but um, I have no doubt that that, it's a, that in itself is a growing trend. Um, so who wants to go first on this one? Nigel, did you want to jump straight in?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know me, I don't often comment or won't often comment on individual clients or customers specifically in this instance, but I think this highlights a number of really interesting things. Um, we've talked for hours, Sarah, if it feels like you and I over the years, about people not looking at policy wording and not knowing what's in there, and whether it's pandemic, COVID-related, non-COVID-related whether it's silent cyber, which the regulator came out or uh, probably about six months ago and said, what are you covered from a cyber perspective? It goes back to the fact that are we really clear on what we're buying and what we've actually got or are we just ticking a box to allow us to do the thing that we want us to do, uh, which I think is really interesting. Um, And um, another one of the carriers this week came out and said uh, there was a a case in France that went to court and um, was paid out on, number one. And number two, uh, and another carrier came out and said, well, look, whatever the answer is, whether we win or lose, our reinsurance kicks in at a certain limit. So uh, there's a lot of press about this. And I just think it's a, this segment specifically, the SMB, SME sector, has been really hard hit. And I think they're feeling it and they're voicing their their concern for this in the press it's come out in this way. But actually, I think the underlying issue is, do we know what we're buying and what it covers Number one, and then the where we're buying it from there's a, they get an article this morning that talked about the long tail, and the long tail might be if we can't go after the carrier, do we go after the broker that sold it so the d the o claims to come afterwards
0: yeah we're going we're going come on to that uh, the liability insurance in, in just a little bit but um did anybody else want to to comment on that story in particular?
2: I mean I think to nido's point, you're highlighting one of the key areas of potential advantage for Startups in this space is that I think a, a lot of them see the problem as for all types of insurance, but especially when it comes to insurance for small medium businesses, is the fact that policies aren't. Like, a lot of people cannot understand the wording in policies, and even the fact that this has to go to courts and you're getting different lawyers and different opinions on it clearly means that it's not clear cut in terms of what exactly is being covered. And so, I think that's a huge opportunity for startups to be able to kind of clearly outline here's what's covered, here's what's not, here's when you qualify here when you do, here's when you don't um, and make it in a way where customers actually know what they're buying. because I think that yes, in some ways people just are buying it to tick a box, especially if it's compulsory insurance. But in others, it's just too much of a burden to try to understand it or they just honestly cannot. And so they might just choose, oh, this looks like the cheapest, Or this looks like the best value, sure, let me buy it.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, two, there's two sides to it, aren't there? That There is, you know, on the one hand, people don't understand what they're, they're reading. So you could, you know, honestly, I struggle to understand insurance policies sometimes. And as I said before, my partner works in insurance, but sometimes I'm like, I, I don't know what this means. Um, so there is, you know, there is that ambiguity. Um, so there's sorry, there's two sides of it. One is that people aren't sort of educated enough to properly understand insurance to know what they're reading. But on the other hand, I think there is a case we made that some insurers do deliberately make some things ambiguous because that obviously does work in their face. Um, and then there's a question about, you know, whether that should actually be allowed. Um, does anybody else want to jump in on that? Amrit, yes.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, the ambiguity thing are a really difficult one because I think um, the trade off between making your coverage very broad and customer friendly and customer centric uh, and leaving the door open for misinterpretation is a very hard thing to balance. And I think we've seen some of the people who are getting really pilloried in the press uh, trying to have plain English simple wordings and those wordings being ambiguous um, and I think you know this is a political thing now right this isn't about insurance uh, uh, almost anymore and broad coverages are a really thorny just general industry-wide thorny problem.
0: So I'm just going to introduce another another story here and then and then Nigel I'll, I'll come to you but I think it's relevant just off the back of that about kind of what shouldn't shouldn't be allowed and, and, and broad coverage. Um, so this is a story from the New York Times um, that is that the pandemic prompts call for EU catastrophe insurance cover. Uh, yeah, so it's from the New York Times, but it's about the EU, just so that's clear. Um, <laughs> the Federation of European Risk Management Firma said on Tuesday, the 26th of May, that a European Union framework is needed to provide insurance cover for catastrophes such as pandemics and cyber attacks. This would involve public-private partnerships that could cover events which hit businesses but do not involve physical damage. The EU's insurance regulator has also said that national governments need to help in the future as the private sector cannot afford such broad cover on its own. Uh, French insurer AXA, I think this is what you mentioned earlier, Nigel, said on Tuesday it would meet the bulk of claims from some restaurant owners after a Paris court ruled last week that they should pay one owner two months' worth of coronavirus-related revenue losses. So that's obviously um, about precedent there, as far as I understand it. Um, Nigel, did you want to to go first on that?
3: Yeah,
1: it was actually... um it's it's kind of all related. One of the ones that came up this week when the New York Stock Exchange opened, I don't know if you saw the press that said, um, people will start to return to work, but they're going to be made to sign a waiver so that they cannot sue their employer. And I found that intriguing, back to your point about the UK not being litigious. So what if we bring people back to work, either in an individual environment or an environment where multiple people get together to do their job? How do I... How, how can I exclude duty of care from my work, my employer's liability to do that in the first place? Well, I don't think you can in the UK. Maybe you can in, in North America, Jillian, one for you perhaps, but I thought it was really interesting. And then to your point on global insurers, I mean, if you're setting a precedent in one country, how do you then not replicate that in multiple countries? So I think every everyone's keeping their eyes, eyes and um, ears peeled as to what goes on country by country. We've seen a Swiss insurer... Automatically pay out fifty percent of these things, whether they were there or not. Um, Amrit, your point is spot on. It's political. You know, the, the 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 government that puts money back in small businesses' pockets is the one that's going to get revoted back in. And that was quoted to me from a friend in the in the US, where there's an election uh,
0: looming. Right. Uh, yeah, to your point, Nigel, I think I think <laughs> there's a couple of things about whether you can do it in the UK or not. I suspect you cannot under EU law, but as that will no longer apply to us relatively shortly, I'm sure somebody will find a loophole. Um, and second, just as an interesting point, it's not necessarily related to insurance, but uh, I think it is related to your point, is that uh, trade union membership has gone through the roof in the last few months in the UK. Now, as far as I understand it, I, I don't know how it works in the US, you'll have to forgive me, but I, I don't know if they're as big or as powerful. But um, I think perhaps that's the mechanism people are using in this country rather than insurance. To, to try and protect themselves, um, did anybody want to, to, to follow on from Nigel there?
2: Oh well, yeah, no, um, I, I was just going to say, kind of to your point about the New York Times article. I think you are definitely going to see the growth of somewhat of a subset category or new category of business interruption insurance around the non-physical damage side. Um, and while there's kind of been conversations around it, very few insurers really off right now. And actually that's a space that we, good timing, but not necessarily, like, but it wasn't exactly started because of coronavirus. We actually made a pre investment in it. And so I think we see that there's some gr- great tailwinds, obviously not great, but, but helpful tailwinds for the company itself um, around this, but also what does that look like and how can you really price um, the potential impact of different events Um, and how do you know exactly which events are going to be triggers and which are not. And so I think it's really interesting from a conceptual perspective in terms of how do you really understand those risks because, I mean, it depends who you ask, but how many people really expected something like this to happen and then also not really knowing what are the long-term impacts, even when businesses are opening up, when do you get consumers comfortable again with going to those businesses or going back to work, to Nigel's point of view, um, and so I think there's a lot of questions about it, but we see it as a really interesting new opportunity within the insurance space as well. Nadia, did you want to, to make a closing point?
1: Yeah, I think I think you're spot on. Um, there's been many efforts, uh, many government efforts across the globe where folks are trying to work out what we do for future pandemics, so I think we've got to solve, there'll be a line drawn over uh, under this over in a couple of years' time once everything's sorted out, there will be a, a long tail but i think to your point who expected this well actually it's been on the world economic forum list for a long time so it was expected although the likelihood was low the cyber attack is a is a bigger issue that we're facing into and we can we can um we've got closer to as an insurance industry because we can see it we can touch it with happening now just not at such a scale the the, the us um efforts in this space are actually looking at a private stroke public a uh, combination or consortium, because ultimately, whilst the government will need to step in in almost any case for something of this scale, the people that understand the risk best are insurers. So well, it that, makes sense to. Sorry,
0: go I was to say that's what Firma suggested in this Federation of European Risk Management. It's that public-private model. um Sorry, finish your point. I... No, it
1: was, I, I, that was it. I mean, I think. I think. Uh, It'd be interesting that every single country, I guess you just, you know, you've just nudged me on this one. If every country's doing the same thing and we've got global carriers and global reinsurers, why aren't we doing something on a more broader structural perspective that says the way to deal with this globally in the same way that we've all gone to, hey, look, science says social distancing is a good way to do something. Is there not a scientific way for dealing with pandemics that we can apply to the financial services model?
0: Oh, that would be the dream. I've talked about global financial regulation for a while, but if the states can't even get all their states to agree, I think we're going to be <laughs> going to be a long time waiting. Um, just to your point about it being political, just I just wanted to add one thing there is that you know at the moment, yes, any any government that puts money into the pockets of individuals and and small business is going to you know win the popular vote, if you like. But governments also, and when we mentioned this previously. No government wants to be the one to let the insurers fail and take everybody down with them, and all those jobs, and uh, you know, and the policies people have becoming invalid, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a political aspect to that as well. Um, if we, you know, we, we won't dwell on it too long. But if you go back to 2008, we had to bail the banks out. So what's to say we we wouldn't have to bail the insurers out if they were left to carry the weight of this on their own? Just before we continue, are you switching up your morning routine? Now we're all social distancing? Well, so are we. In fact, we've started two daily breakfast shows to help you kick off your day on both sides of the Atlantic. On the FinTech of Breakfast Show, we chat about the latest news with a series of industry guests, all dialing in remotely. Uh, it goes live on LinkedIn every morning at 8.30 a.m. BST. You just follow David Breer on LinkedIn. And if you're US-based and 8.30 BST is just a little bit too early, do not worry. We haven't forgotten you. We have the US option. Vintech Insider Breakfast Show US is hosted by Sam Moore and goes live at 10.30 ET. So grab a coffee and tune in. For the US show, just follow 11 colon FS on LinkedIn to get the daily notification. And for both shows, don't forget to add your comments in the thread. We love hearing where you're tuning in from and we'll try and answer as many questions as we can on each show. All right, back to the news. Right, the next story is one that I think is literally a no insert expletive here. Sherlock. Um the pandemic increases prices in the insurance industry. So we took this from the Financial Times, but you could find it anywhere. Um insurance prices rise across the board as coronavirus hits. So the prices for commercial insurance are rising at rates that have not been seen for almost 20 years, uh, adding pressure on businesses that are already struggling to deal with the coronavirus crisis. Um, industry experts say that prices for some types of cover are actually doubling uh, as insurers attempt to repair the, some of the damage that the crisis has had on their balance sheets. Um, insurers are facing a double hit from the coronavirus. As we know, claims from customers are going to be huge. But there's also a hit to reserves because the financial markets are still a bit wobbly. And. Um, one of the lines where prices are rising the most is liability insurance for directors and officers, um, as we sort of touched on slightly earlier. Um, the higher prices are, of course, going to be a challenge for buyers of insurance um, who have financial problems themselves. So if we go back to the SMB point, if your insurance you've got isn't paying out and then next year's insurance is twice as expensive, you are. Insurance are not going to be your favorite people right now. You are, you are not going to be happy bunnies. Um, so, I mean... I think this was absolutely to be expected, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe there was something else that could have happened here. Amrit, um, go for it.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're right, Sarah, that just even by itself, this is a pretty big deal. Uh, the one thing I would say is having worked in the commercial and specialty industry for quite a while, the last couple of years, have it's been a distressed market um, on the brink uh, of something like this. Uh, and people have talked for a long time about what it would take to cause a dislocation uh, in the market. So I think the, key, the you know the key thing I take away there is that people have been saying you know the market's on the edge for a little while. What's go, what's it going to take to actually cause the price you know once in twenty year price uh, uh, changes? This is certainly uh, certainly that. And I think the big thing as you get as you again it points out to what something you just referenced. This isn't a, a single event that then goes away, right? This is the sort of event that has uh, an intensity that lasts. Uh, for quite a while uh, and that's the sort of thing that's quite different from a large individual loss from a hurricane or from a large you know explosion or something like that this is something that has a duration that's very very significant and I think when you look at that the potential it has to create a sustained level of price increases uh is is key but I think the point you made about you know it, it doesn't feel like it, it particularly in the political environment right now insurers are going to get away with denying coverage and increasing prices at the same time um cool. That that feels like something combined with a, a, a one of the biggest elections of of, of quite uh, of quite a while uh, and, and several other economic factors going on. Uh, that you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out.
0: Absolutely, Alex. Did you want to add to that?
3: I sort of have a question for everybody here, which is you know, some of us are fearing there's going to be a second wave of the corona pandemic as we get back into fall, as it I think it happened with influenza. Um, what in an ideal world, what do we think, who would be best positioned to, to, to help the economy uh, manage that shock? Do, do we think the insurance sector, the private sector, should be able to weather it as long as prices are well adjusted? Or is that something governments should be doing? Or, or is it a mix?
0: Then that goes back to that public-private conversation, doesn't it? Um, Amrit, did you, you wanted to respond there.
4: Yeah, it's a really good question, Alex. I think one of the things people often forget at times like this, in the, again, in a highly politically charged environment, is that theoretically, insurance is for events you're not sure is going to happen. Um, and if you have a certain, you, you know, if something is guaranteed to to happen, the risk mitigation metric measures insurance is a particularly good one because insurance companies that think they're going to certainly going to have a play to pay a claim out don't charge very very appealing prices. Um, I think you know Sarah's point about public private partnership. You know, I think insurers are very well placed to talk about the mitigants and what can be done to reduce the the, the likelihood of something happening again because they've got a very vested interest in understanding when they set premiums what the factors are that drive that. Um, but it feels to me something that needs to be really be managed in, in concert with the government and the government's actual measures to control the risk uh, through the front door rather than going, you know what, if you get sick or if you get interrupted because of something, again, we're going to pay out. It doesn't feel like something that's a... a, a uh, uh, a strategy that many insurance companies haven't taken a huge kicking right now. are going to want to jump, jump on.
3: Because I know Nigel was saying that there's reinsurance as well. So I, I'm wondering, uh, of course, if your goal when you're running an insurance company is just to maximize the profits, you're going to want to try and get the government to come in as much as possible. But with all these layers in the private sector built in, could it also be enough to, to weather it? it?
1: It depends on where the, I'm, I'm trying to in my mind, display a visual that I've got. And It depends on the organization that you are and if you're public or private. So if you're PE backed versus shareholder driven, in my mind, and it depends on who your buyer is. So we are five individuals on a a Zoom conference call, recording a podcast that know and love insurance. You go to the average Joe in the street who's not been driving or whatever else or not doing stuff and they've seen their prices go up and their pension investments go down you've got a double hit in the pocket of a of a consumer or individual and that just spells bad news for, for the end user. If you're a professional buyer of risk or insurance or whatever else, you understand the rationale, but that cost has got to be baked into the cost of goods going forward. If you're therefore doing uh, events um, at a concert venue or you're flying planes or you've got Marine or you're running a rail network and your new normal for um aviation is running your planes at 30 percent capacity then prices you know i saw an article the other day that said london to new york economy prices had doubled so you're going to run twice the number of planes to get the same capacity back which will take four years to get there i mean it's it's a really horrible circle if you try depending on where you enter it, what you're entering it for so if you're an end user with investment or a buyer i'm not sure there's an easy straightforward answer to it um
0: just to add to the problem there, of course, you're going to have a couple of things. You're going to have people who just cannot afford to buy insurance anymore. They just can't. Now, if you're a business, there are some businesses where you have to have certain types of insurance in order to operate, particularly um, if you're in, I don't know, hospitality in some areas like that, you know, particularly certainly in this country, the law requires you to have certain types of insurance in order to operate. If you cannot afford that insurance, you're going to go out of business because you're not legally allowed to operate. Um you know, for the people who do have a choice, who are choosing whether to insure or not, if it's that much more expensive, you might think, well, blow that. I'm not going to bother. Now, the savviest people will go, I'm not going to bother with insurance. I'm just going to put a bit more on my savings every month. Um, and, you know, use that to cover anything that goes wrong with, I don't know, the boiler, let's say, or or, or having a flood in the house. I don't know. Those are of insurance I know you can choose from. Um, But the end result of both is that insurers actually get less money because fewer people are buying insurance. So I think there's possibly a knock-on effect
2: there as well. I completely agree with that. And I think to add even further, Sarah, is that there's a lot of people who, I mean, traditionally in a normal environment, couldn't afford to necessarily add more to their savings. But especially now when unemployment is at its highest, at least in the US, highest ever, but um, economies are suffering globally It's even harder for people to be able to save additionally. So I think absolutely, if they're not legally required to purchase insurance, I think it's going to go down either way. Um, And people aren't going to have the savings to necessarily mitigate that risk themselves either. And so I think it's just, yeah, as Nigel said, it's a vicious circle that just kind of continues.
0: Well, if anybody has the solution, please do let us know. Let us know privately, and we'll patent it, and then you know we'll, we'll share a cut of it when we start our own business. Um,
1: one, one last thing. Sorry, sorry, very quickly. And I, I have heard this from a number of uh, friends in the industry. We mustn't also forget that while some will be significantly hit, many insurers won't be hit at all because they don't do bi. They haven't got any. They might have a single whammy rather than a double whammy. So in some cases, you could argue it's no different than an average cat year. Sorry, average catastrophe years.
0: <laughs> I heard you I heard you say cat year, and I was like, is this like a dog year? Is this yeah. like an insurance thing? Chinese
1: with- calendar. Yeah, it's what? nothing to do with bought by many. Um, <laughs> but, but, but you could argue for some carriers, it's business as usual, and it's an opportunity to do something good. And rather than looking in and down and going to vicious circle, Maybe the brave old souls are there going, how do we look up and out and use this as a revolutionary moment to strengthen what we can do today? And I think that gives that differentiates the folks that are genuinely going to be struggling through this and the folks that see opportunity through.
3: Yeah. So
0: to, put it, to put it mildly, it might give insurers a kick up the bum then. (laughs) All right. I'm going to move us on to a slightly more cheerful note, though sadly we are still talking about COVID-19. So the uh, final story today is that Flock is supporting Skyports in NHS drone delivery trials. So the NHS is obviously the UK's National Health Service. Um, This week Skyports will conduct flights between two hospitals in Scotland, taking off in Oban before flying 10 miles away to the Isle of Mull. For those of you who are not familiar with Scottish geography, that is a very, very remote part of uh, the United. Kingdom and indeed of Scotland. So um, it makes sense, very quiet up there. Um, The goal is to cut delivery times from six hours one way via ferry to just 15 minutes on demand by drone, demonstrating the possibility of delivering urgent medical equipment such as COVID-19 test kits um, and PPE between remote medical facilities by a delivery drone. So uh, a few years ago, drone deliveries were no more than science fiction. Today, they're taking place around the world, helping to transport critical equipment like PPE and medication, commented FLOC CEO Ed Leon Klinger. Um, The two week trial represents a key milestone for unmanned aviation in the UK, uh, because under current rules, drones must be flown within a visual line of sight of the pilot. To undertake these extended flights, the project team have worked closely with the UK's Civil Aviation Authority. Uh, so, overall, sounds quite positive. It sounds like a good idea. One of the, the benefits of drones that's been sort of widely mooted is that they can get uh, things, you know, we would all love our Amazon parcels quicker, but actually they can get things like medicine to places it's needed, um, you know, uh, faster and more efficiently. Um, does anybody else have anything they want to add on that? Alex, please.
3: Yeah, I'm just trying to, curious to understand how it works. So, if the drone has to remain within your line of sight... I'm sort of picturing it zooming across a ferry uh, along the shores of Scotland. Uh, Uh, So so where's the person?
0: It doesn't have to. At the moment, it should do, but they've got an exemption for the test, is my understanding.
3: Very nice. Because I I agree. We, We remember that time where we all imagined, I think Amazon was doing a lot of PR around. We'll have drones delivering parcels to you and then... That big limitation on on the drone having to remain within your line of sight—it's it's it's very interesting. So that's an exemption that 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 could be a very interesting development for, for the drone space. I'm, I'm, I mean, I think this is—it's awesome in lots of ways, right? Isn't it? I think it's
4: an example of uh, something new being done and insurance being used to to enable something new by providing a backstop to something that which uh, you know is arguably new uh, inventive and therefore a little bit more risky but if insurance is being used and a modern provider like the flock guides are being used to mitigate some of that risk it's allowing us to do new things uh, and ultimately that's when insurance adds the most value right Is when actually it, it creates um it enables opportunities that wouldn't have been done before uh,
1: so it, it, it's absolutely great if you uh, look at the risk or the whole concept of insurance in the first place, our goal in life is to remove risk. And there was a thing on the news a while back when pandemic was week six hundred and three, I think, or whatever we were in. Uh, but it was a, it was like an old uh, an older lady, like your grandma, who had to go to the local village in Ireland to get her medicine all the time. And they were delivering to her front lawn um, her medicine from a pharmacy and I, and you see all sorts of examples, you see, you know, pubs delivering pints and bottles of beer to people, but delivering someone's medicine to keep this lady away from risk shows you how we can start fixing things at the customer all the way through. And if you go through the chain, lady hasn't got to go to pharmacy or put herself in harm's way as a high risk individual to get the drone in the air. We're solving that with risk. It just shows you how important insurance is. and, and, you know, kudos to Ed and um, and John and and uh, the, uh, Anton and the entire team over at Flock. It's a really really cool thing. Uh, the whole the whole not not seeing your drone. I nearly lost mine last weekend. I was flying it with my little guy in the in the garden gust of wind and it went. And I was running down the street going, "Oh my god!" Followed by my little guy going, "Have you lost it? Dad? Have you lost it?" I'm like, I don't know. Never mind so, losing
0: it. Did you decapitate somebody's yeah, cat or you I know hit somebody? I want in the head my drone back.
1: I have never panicked like it in my life. So I have to say, I, actually, you, until you've flown one and it's been taken off in a gust of wind, and mine's obviously a recreational play thing, um, you can see very quickly how 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 just skilled the pilots are that use these things day in, day out, and why you need, um, you know, a real-time experience, a real-time risk engine to go, hey, there's a gust of wind coming. So if, you, if anyone watches... Um, the SpaceX thing the other day, where they're a hundred miles away, stopped the launch. So having that insight brought together into a dashboard and tell you whether you can fly or not fly, or what the risk is going to do and ensure it, is amazing. Truly amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean I think I think the um the the It's modern insurance for, you know, what I would say is like the modern world, but then the modern world changed and I'm not quite sure what the modern world is anymore. Um, And I've just banned the phrase, the new normal. Um, I think the interesting thing about this for me, particularly when you're looking at the medical stuff, is the need to balance the ability to use these drones to get medical care to people who need it and not people who can afford it. So maybe we have to balance it. But the people who are doing the drone deliveries of the medication um, are also doing you know, pr- private Amazon deliveries on the side or something, because you don't want to have a situation where the only people who can afford to have their medication delivered by drone, uh, sorry, the only people who can get medication delivered by drone are people who can afford it. So there has to be a way to balance that. And I think that the drone operators' business models are going to have to find a way around that. Um, Gillian?
2: Yeah, and I'd say that that's probably a a longer-term risk. I will say, Flock is one of, as an Anthemus portfolio company, so we're really excited about this opportunity. But I think that's more of a longer-term risk. I think where the most value in something like this, and especially delivering medicine, is in more remote areas where you probably aren't having the wealthiest people anyway. And there's a company in San Francisco called Zipline that a close friend of mine works for. And um, they've been delivering medicine in East Africa for some years via drones as well. And so I think where you're seeing the greatest impact and the real focus of this right now is where people can't necessarily get access. And so I think, yes, at some point in whatever distant future, when drones are delivering everything and Amazon's using them and every delivery service is using them, then I think that becomes more of a risk. But I think it's really broadly been targeted at more areas where access and need is a problem
0: good well let's let's hope that that maintains focus i'm gonna have to wrap us up there because i know that we could all talk about all of this all day um that wraps up the news for this time uh where can our listeners find out more about you do you have a website a twitter handle linkedin you'd like to share jillian how about you
2: yeah um anthemist.com and then also you can find me on twitter with my handle is Perfect. Amrit, how about you?
4: Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. Uh, You can reach
3: out uh, via hyperexponential.com as
0: well. Alex, how about you?
3: Uh, You can find us at www.tractable.ai.
0: Perfect. And Nigel, when you're not running down the street looking for your drone, where can people find you?
1: Lying on the floor crying that I've not decapitated the neighbour's cat. No, I am on Twitter at Nigel Walsh or on LinkedIn.
0: And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you to all my guests today, to Gillian, to Amrit, to Alex, to James from By Miles, and as always, Nigel. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Intertech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.